This is the Ruminant Podcast. I'm Jordan Marr. The Ruminant.ca is a website dedicated to sharing good ideas for farmers and gardeners. At the Ruminant, you can find past episodes of this podcast, essays I've written, a few book reviews, and a whole lot of photo-based blog posts, some of which were made by me and some of which were submitted by you. So I hope you'll check it out, theruminant.ca. And if you want to get a hold of me, editor at theruminant.ca or at ruminantblog on Twitter. Okay, let's do this show. Hey everybody, it's Jordan, and I am talking to you on an absolutely gorgeous day, a late summer day in BC's Okanagan Valley here on the farm, and I'm in a great mood. I just got off the phone with a listener who called in to talk about some tips he had for using a Berta rotary plow on the back of his walking tractor after I invited you folks to to get a hold of me about that. And it was a great conversation, and his insights are going to improve the segment that I'm producing with Scott Humphreys on on using the rotary plow. And uh, that's exactly what I'm hoping to do with the podcast. I'm hoping I can convince some of you to get a hold of me, uh, either either to contribute to a segment that I've announced that I'm working on, or just to 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 tell me something that you think other farmers want to know about, something useful. And that's what this listener did, David from Quebec, and it was a great conversation. And so I really hope that I can encourage more of that. And there are different ways you can get a hold of me. Editor at theruminant.ca is one. You can text me at my cell phone, 250-767-6636. Or, or you can call my Skype number where you can leave a self-contained voicemail, either something you mean to be just added to the podcast or just to let me know you want me to get a hold of you. And that's 310-734-8426. So I really, I really hope you'll consider doing that. I think all of us have some, some great insights we've made in our garden or on our farms that uh, I think other people could really benefit from hearing about. Okay, so today's episode features my conversation with Ian Knauer, who is an American chef who wrote a cookbook that I picked up by chance about a year ago and I just fell in love with. It's, it's a great book. It's called The Farm, and like I say, it's a great book. So I wrote Ian some time ago just to tell him I thought his book was great, and I thought I'd ask him if he'd come on the podcast to talk about cooking and, and also about farming since he spent time on a farm. And uh, he graciously agreed to come on. Unfortunately, when we finally got together on the phone, he was driving and talking on his cell phone. So the audio quality is is not great, but it's 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 not terrible either. So I apologize for that. But that's all I really need to say. It was just a fun conversation, mostly about cooking, and uh, so I hope you enjoy it. Here it is, and I'll talk to you at the end. Ian Knauer, thanks a lot for joining me on the Ruminant Podcast. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Ian, I, I asked you to come on the show because about a year ago I purchased your book, your cookbook called The Farm, Rustic Recipes for a Year of Incredible Food. And uh, I'll start by t- telling you a little anecdote. I I had read somewhere that it was a good book and then like I do when I read that kind of stuff about cookbooks, I looked it up online and just saw right away that it was really cheap as an ebook on Amazon. So I picked it up just because of that because what, what the hell, you know? Um, but I loved it so much, and I hate reading ebooks for cooking so much that I, I ordered I ordered the hardcover. I just think it's a great book. You've done a really good job. Thanks. I have to tell Amazon to charge more for it. <laughs> I think you should. At the time, I think I paid three dollars. It's worth uh, a heck a heck of a lot more. Ian, 
I want. I guess I want to start with your dedication in the book. It's uh, you've dedicated this this cookbook to Daniel uh, Daniel Knauer, and I'm wondering who that is and and why you uh, dedicated it to him. Uh, Daniel was my grandfather uh, on my father's side, of course, um, and he was sort of the patriarch of the family. Uh, my father's one of seven children, um, and I'm one of 24 grandchildren um, on that side, and. He, uh, he was very, very involved with the, the family farm. He was the one who kept it in the family and did a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the updates and the maintenance on it. And as the oldest grandchild, um, I often got roped into all that work as well. So I, I, in hindsight, I was very fortunate to be able to spend so much time with him when I was growing up. Um, and he really taught me a lot uh, about pretty much everything. Right. And I, I take it, it becomes pretty clear when you start reading this cookbook that the, the farm is the main inspiration for the cookbook. And so I'm wondering if I have that right. And, and regardless, if you could, if you could describe your, your family's farm. Uh, yeah, you're right. The, uh, it's, a, it's a really neat place. It's a special place. Uh, it's about 40 acres, uh, which is a typical size for a farm from that era, which is the, the mid 1600, uh, sorry, 1700s. Um, and uh, it's not a working farm anymore. Uh, we don't we don't sell what we produce. We just eat it. Um, but of course, you know, there's a lot of maintenance that goes along with it. Um, and it's been in the family so long uh, that uh, it makes it sort of a special place. Um, we gather there for reunions. We uh, we all get together there. Um, and in fact, uh, the town that it's in is called Canauer Town, named after the family. Uh, the original member of the family came over from southern Germany in the, the mid-1600s um, and uh, got a deed from William Penn and Sons for about 3,000 acres in Pennsylvania, and the 40-acre farm is all that's left of that. Great. Thank you, Ian. And can you also talk a little bit about, so, so I mean, the farm very clearly inspired the book in terms of, I mean, most of, the, kind of the theme of the book is is recipes that were inspired by the farm in general, and specifically this massive garden you and your um, some of your sisters and cousins put in. Um, but what about your what about your your cooking background? Like where where did you can you can you talk a little bit about how you became a professional chef? Sure. I uh, it, it wasn't a, a very typical road. I did not go to culinary school. Um, instead, I, I studied business and uh, became a stockbroker when I graduated college. Uh, and I did that for about two years and hated every second of it. Um, and so what I would do to sort of clear my head is uh, go back to the farm and cook. Uh, and it was really uh, what I enjoyed doing. Uh, and I decided at one point that, you know, I should try and figure out how to make a living doing what I love doing instead of trying to make a living doing something that I hated. So I, uh, I quit the stock market and I got very lucky. I met the woman who was... I just got the job as the editor in chief of Gourmet Magazine. Her name is Lee Breischel. And she was looking to hire someone uh, who had not been to culinary school, someone who was a very avid uh, and, and passionate home cook, uh, but she did not want a professional cook. She wanted someone who was like the readers of the magazine to test the recipes. So uh, I got that job. This was in 2001, um, and did that for about three years. And Eventually, what happens when you cook every day for a living is you, you become a professional cook. So I, I learned all the, all the tricks uh, that they hoped I didn't know um, when I first got the job, and so I, I outgrew the job. Um, instead of 
firing me, which they could have done, uh, they promoted me, which was very nice. Um, and uh, my new title at the magazine was a food editor. So that meant that instead of testing the recipes, I got to uh, write the recipes and develop the recipes. Uh, and so I was there until 2009, which is when the, the magazine closed. Uh, and that was really, really my education in food. Um, you know, I, I got to cook every recipe that was uh, published in the magazine for almost a decade. Um, and when you do that, you really learn the ins and the outs of cooking. Um, and so it just really it was a wonderful education for me. So, and that's, it is, I mean, I agree with you. It is a really interesting uh, uh, background in terms of how you got, you got into it. And also, I would think really, really valuable in going on to make a cookbook because you spent a lot of time testing other people's recipes, hey? That's exactly right. Yeah, so, so not only testing, but then writing them. So I really, really got uh, some insight on what makes a recipe work and what doesn't make a recipe work, you know, what doesn't, doesn't work. Um, and I was able to use those skills uh, that I learned in the magazine uh, in the book. So, what when you when you decided to to make your cookbook, what did you primarily want to do differently? Well, I wanted to really tell a story. Um, you know, a, cookbooks can be a, a fantasy in a way. Uh, I have hundreds of them at home, and I love to read through them and, and look at the pictures and read the head notes and and really understand the story of where the food comes from. Um, and so in my book, I really focused on that. Uh, a lot of the recipes are for my grandmother's recipes. A lot of them have Pennsylvania Dutch roots like my family. Uh, but at the same time, I tried to modernize them and make them something that home cooks would want to cook these days, too. Uh, so really the story behind the recipes is something that I, I wanted to bring out, out front. And I think you, I, I think you did a great job. One thing I like about the book is just about, just about, or maybe every single recipe has a short story behind it that you start with, and that's that's really cool. Um, so, so who is who? What, what did you have an intended audience in mind when you wrote it, Ian? Not really. I mean, you know, when they when you write a when you write a cookbook proposal that wants you to um, uh, figure out who's going to buy the book, and the publisher wants to know. Um, so I tried my best to do that, um, uh, but you know one of the things that has become so popular now is um, the the idea of uh, farm to table. You know, and that's a phrase that we hear so much these days. Um, but uh, it, it isn't always explained. You know, so it's it's buying locally, it's buying what what you grow, it's it's um, you know finding these heirloom recipes that uh, really help this produce and, and the meat that you have shine. Right. And I mean, that's one thing I really appreciate about the book is, is that there's just, there's all, you know, I run, I'm a farmer, I grow vegetables for a living and I run a CSA. Uh, and so one of the challenges of putting out a CSA is a lot of your customers don't know what to do with, with what they're, what, what you're sending them. And this is a great book for, um, for giving <laughs> me inspiration but also also my customers and and uh i've i've encouraged them to take a look just because there's so many options for a lot of the lesser less popular stuff or less less known stuff coming out of the garden sure i think i've i think i have three recipes for swiss chard in there <laughs> because that's one of the things that is really easy uh for me to grow so you know i've got a, i got a lot of it yeah um i also like that you you know 
Well, first, okay, I better go back. You mentioned the farm to table movement, and there's a couple things I wanted to ask you about that movement. First of all, where you think it's at? I mean, you've you've been a professional chef kind of all the way through the last 15 years or so of this movement, and I'm just wondering what you've observed about where it started and where it's at now. I think it's come a long way since since I've been cooking. Um, you know, just the importance of understanding where your food comes from has become a national consciousness, which it wasn't 15 years ago. Um, and in fact, I think a lot of that wouldn't possible without uh, the CSA model. You know, people now have an opportunity to really support their local farm, and they can do it by investing in a share. Um, and I think that that has uh, really changed the way that we eat in this country. Uh, if not for everyone, of course, then for people who are interested in that. And I think it's, um, I think it's a really great step uh, and a great direction that we're going in. I think we're not entirely there yet, of course. Um, but I think uh, I think things are a lot better than they were. In terms of where I think we're at with the farm to table movement, Ian, I, I think we I agree with you that we've made great progress. Um, in that people, so many more people are just are like really into the idea of sourcing local and and obtaining fresh ingredients. Uh, but I still think we have progress to make. Like, and for example, there's so many great uh, greens and other vegetables that that still aren't really appreciated and i would say chief among them are the are the bitter plants so your endives and your 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 dandelion and that sort of thing um and i think it's such a shame because they're so good um but i can totally understand why why people don't want to cook with them i like you know what i mean like we just it takes a while to develop kind of a palate for them yeah i think you're true uh i think i think you're right that's totally true um uh but one of the things that i always go back to is that if you know how to cook something and you have the right recipe for that ingredient, then it's going to be delicious. Um, so bitter greens are actually one of my favorite things. Um, and I think if you treat them the right way, then they'll definitely uh, be well-liked. So dandelion is a good example. Um, there's a recipe in the book that was my grandmother's uh, for dandelion, and it's an old Pennsylvania Dutch recipe. And it adds uh, bacon fat and a little bit of sugar and some vinegar uh, to the dressing, and those really round out that bitter that bitter flavor. So you have the saltiness, the smokiness, the sweetness, and the and the acid, and it really sort of like um, makes it much more palatable. Actually, uh, I have another recipe for escarole that has a, a cream sauce and a sauce of pasta. So you know, I think I think once people are able to taste those bitter greens, for example, and they have the right recipe, then I think they'll absolutely be on board with them. I know, I know, I am. So, Ian, I want to just go back to the to the process of making a cookbook, and I'm wondering, um, as you headed into the process, like, did you have any of your own pet peeves about other cookbooks that you were trying to avoid? Well, yeah, and this is going to sound funny, um, but uh, a lot of recipes will not use the word the. So they will say instead, they'll say, um, boil water in a pot, add Swiss chard, uh, and et cetera, et cetera. Instead of saying, uh, bring a pot of water to a boil, then add the with chard. And I think that, that that addition of that one word, the word the, makes a huge difference in the way it reads, the way the recipe reads. It stops reading like stereo instructions and starts feeling like someone's actually telling you how to, how to put together the dish. Um, so that, you know, something as small as that uh, to something that's a much larger picture um, with 
for instance, like the, the chapter introduction. So each, each chapter in my book has a, a little story in the beginning of it that sort of like sets the tone for the, for the recipes and why, you know, explains why they're in there. Um, so I think, I think all those, you know, and everything in, in between, really. Um, another thing is uh, uh, measurements of salt. So a lot of recipes will say, in the ingredient list, will say, you know, half a teaspoon of salt or something like that. And I think that salt's really subjective. Um, so I try to not call for uh, measures of salt. Instead, just call for salt and then say, you know, add this much here and then add this much here and then add some more to taste when you, when you taste it at the end. Uh, so I think, yeah, all those, all those points and probably many more went into the process. See, what's kind of interesting about your last comment about salt is that I think it's the kind of thing that those precise measurements that new cooks really desire because they're so new cooks tend to just lack confidence and be kind of almost stressed out in the kitchen and really appreciate those uh, exact amounts. But as you point out, the trade off is that that it, it, it is a subjective thing, seasoning and that, and that when you when you follow exact amounts, you, you don't end up with the right flavors. And, and it, I guess it just depends on the cooking conditions and, and everything else. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, it depends on the salt. Different salts are different levels of saltiness. In fact, like a table salt, like a fine salt, is twice as salty as a kosher salt. There's actually twice as much salt in there. So it's hard to, it's hard to give uh, exact measurements. And I think tasting the food as you cook it and, you know, again, before you serve it, is probably the most important key when it comes to seasoning. And unfortunately, it just seems like people you just have to learn that as a cook i mean it's not really it's not very there's not very many places where that's really explained um you know like and that was one of the major breakthroughs i made as a home cook is just learning to taste constantly and just just take a looser approach you know rather than just following recipes super strictly yeah that's exactly right and like anything else um, you're not going to get good at cooking unless you cook and then you'll get you'll get better and you'll get better and better and better um, and, you know, no one, even the best cooks among us, was born knowing how to cook. Uh, I think some people have a, a, you know, a passion for it, and that makes it easier to learn. But unless you're doing it, unless you're willing to make some mistakes and, and realize that it's just dinner on the table, you know, <laughs> at the end of the world, then, then you're not going to learn those, those little fine points that you pick up when you, when you cook. And so, you know, now that speaking of cooking, I, I kind of wanted to just round out our conversation, Ian, with just some specific um, questions for you, the, the professional cook. I, I don't get a chance to do that very often. And um, I thought I'd try and make them more uh, uh, in, the con- in the context of farmers who, who are either cooking for themselves or, or cooking for a farm crew. Um, but first, I just want to ask, like, one that I've unrelated that I wanted to ask a, a professional for a while um, I've really come to appreciate in the last couple of years how versatile and wonderful the lemon is in the, in the kitchen. Um, but I feel like I'm constantly using lemons for juice and I know there's other aspects of the lemon that are really valuable, but I'm often just composting the rest of the lemon. And I'm wondering how, how I, or you, how, how, how I can get more out of a lemon. Is there something I should be doing with the rind all the time and saving it? Or do you? Sure. Uh, I mean, there's, there are lots of options actually. First of all, the zest just the yellow part on the outside has a ton of very floral flavor. So any chance I get, I get that off there with a, a rasp or a, a microplane and add it to the dish or put it in a salad dressing or whatever. Uh, but then the pit, the, the white part that's quite bitter, um, that can be good too. Uh, some people actually like it the way it is. In fact, somebody just told me last night that um, he puts half, half of the lemon, the whole thing, 
in a blender with olive oil and salt and pepper and makes a creamy uh, salad dressing with that. And it is a little bitter, but he seems to like that. Um, so I haven't tried that yet, but I'm, I'm definitely going to. Um, and then uh, you can also preserve that pith. Uh, you can either make uh, preserved lemon, which uh, is done by just adding salt to it. So put your, your lemon, you can just use the pith if you want, in a jar and pack it with salt. Um, and that will sort of like, the salt will suck all the, all the liquid out of there, um, and it will make it much more mild uh, to, to eat and taking away a lot of that bitterness. And then, finally, you can candy it. So you can cut up that, that rind uh, and cook it very low and slow with some sugar, um, and it will cook all that bitterness out of there and give you a really, really nice, complexly flavored uh, uh, rind of a lemon. So, yeah, I, I love them. I use them in almost everything. So does that is that to suggest that you're rarely composting much of the lemon? Like, are you almost all the time using that whole lemon? That's kind of what I'm getting at. Am I, should I be feeling, should, am I doing the wrong thing? Because I'm almost always composting the lemon, and often all I'm using is the juice, and that just seems like a waste. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's entirely up to you. I mean, at some point, depending on how many lemons you use, um, you're going to have an absolute excess of <laughs> lemon rind. Yeah. So, you know, it's... If you want to, uh, if you want to candy them or preserve them, I think that's a great option. Um, but you know, there's nothing wrong with throwing it in a compost pile. Compost you should not lose any sleep over that. Well, okay, but what about what about the zest? Sorry, I'm I'm quickly revealing. I'm kind of obsessed with this right now. But should I mean should I be taking the zest off and storing it in the fridge, like with every lemon, and just trying to incorporate it in, into different recipes? Um, yeah, I would. I mean, I think of the zest as free flavor, and it doesn't take any work to get. Whereas something like uh, preserving a lemon or candying a lemon, you're going to spend a couple hours uh, or even a, a week or so when it comes to preserving to get it where you want to get it. Um, but the zest, I, I just take that off and wrap it in a little ball of uh, plastic wrap, stick it in the fridge if you're not going to use it right away, and then put it in just about anything. I mean, put it in pancake batter and it's going to make them better. Is it is it a decent substitute for the juice? You know what I mean? Like I use a lemon for the juice, I save the zest, and then the next time I need juice, I just use the zest, or, or do you consider them quite different? Well, I think um, I think they are quite different. The zest doesn't have any acid component to it, but it does have a lot of lemony uh, floral flavor. So a great way to get that flavor into something, like a, like a cake or a cupcake, for instance, without adding the acid to the juice, uh, is to use the zest. Right. Okay. Cool. Thanks, Ian. Um, so another, another thing I wanted to ask you um, is just cooking for a, a group in a hurry, you know, like in a supreme hurry, but in the, in the same context you have at your farm where you have an absolute bounty of stuff. So you have almost unlimited veggie choices, but you don't have a lot of time. And I'm wondering, I'll, I'll try and I'll try and focus the question a bit. Like one thing that that if you have a big garden, you always have a lot of is zucchini. And I'm just, I thought I'd ask you, like, if you have a lot of zucchini and also an unlimited supply of other veg, um, but you want to make zucchini the star of a dish and you have 20 minutes to feed a group of five, what would you do? Yeah, I would I would not cook it. I would actually serve it raw. So zucchini is a good example. Um, you could shave that really thinly. Uh, if you have like a hand slicer, that would be the best way to do it. You can also do it with a knife, but get it paper thin uh, and then toss it like you would a salad, maybe some Parmesan cheese put your lemon and your lemon zest in there, some olive oil, salt, and pepper, and you have like an instant dish uh, that takes as long as it takes to slice the, the vegetables, you know, no cooking required. Uh, I would say the same with just about everything, Swiss chard included, obviously tomatoes. Um, so if you can come up with a, a really quick uh, 
salad-like dish, um, you're going to spend a lot less time actually cooking because you're not cooking. Okay, so that actually is a great segue into my my last question about cooking and probably my last question of this interview, Ian. Um, I wanted to ask you about like, not salad dressing recipes, but just like general approaches or concepts with salad dressing, you know, like, because, you know, you just said, like, you can take almost so much of the garden's produce, make it, you know, prepare it raw, and then just put a nice dressing on. Um, but we've all, I don't know, I've, I've had many fails with dressing, just ones that just don't, you know, when you have, when you taste a good dressing, it's just incredible. It doesn't always happen to me as a home cook. And I'm wondering, like, just if you could talk about some general principles in, in just creating a quick, really delicious dressing for raw veg. Sure. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the most general thing to mention is the proportion of oil to acid. Um, and I think a lot of people skimp on the, on the, the oil part. Um, but what you really want is three parts oil to one part acid. And that's going to feel like a lot, but then you're going to taste it, and it's, it's going to taste delicious because that oil will coat your mouth uh, and really balance out the, the acid and the salt in the dressing. Um, so I would, I would start there, three parts oil. Olive oil, obviously, is, is a great choice uh, for salad, and it's what I use most of the time. To so one part acid, and that could be your lemon juice, apple cider vinegar, um, you know, and any number of, of other acids in there. Um, another another great trick is to add an emulsifier. So um, those are things that make the oil and the acid come together instead of separating. You know, you, you can shake uh, lemon juice and olive oil as much as you want, and eventually it's going to separate into two layers. And you can see that. You see it all the time. But if you add an egg yolk or some Dijon mustard or an anchovy filet that's chopped up or garlic clove that's smashed, all those things will act to bring it together so that it doesn't separate. And what you end up getting is an even better mouthfeel. Um, so any one of those or any combination of those uh, will give you a really, really nice dressing. Oh, right on. That emulsifier tip is really great. I mean, I, I didn't, I hadn't really thought about that a lot. Um, uh, the, just as a, as a, as a, as a follow-up, I find, I find as a home cook that I often overdress just in terms of volume. Do you know when, you know, that, classic kind of soggy salad <laughs> um sure and and is it just a matter of of making a really strong dressing and then going lighter because a little goes a long way or is there something else i'm missing yeah I, I think you got it exactly you know make a make a really flavorful dressing and use half of it and then taste it and see you know see what it looks like see how it feels and then you can always add more of course um another thing to do is add half the dressing and then sprinkle it with a little extra salt uh, which will help bring all those flavors out. Mm-hmm. Um, so either one of those is a, a great way to start. And then, you know, again, you can always add more. And I have to say, I really like soggy salad. So if I'm ever at your farm, you can feel free to <laughs> throw all the dressing on for me. All right. Well, you have an open invitation, Ian. Um, <laughs> Ian, it's a great book. We barely got, we barely scratched the surface ourselves. There's a whole uh, chapter on preserving. That's probably one of my most used chapters. Your, the ketchup recipe you have in there is, oh, it's killer, man. It's so good. Um, but I'm I, glad you like it. Good. Well, uh, I hope people check it out. The Farm, Rustic Recipes for a Year of Incredible Food. And uh, thanks a lot for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Okay. So let me try putting it this way. What is the best decision that you made on your farm or in your garden this year? I would love to hear about that decision. And I think other listeners would too. So why don't you get a hold of me and let me know. I'll call you back and we can record a quick little segment. 
You can text me, 250-767-6636. You can email me, editor at theruminant.ca. Or you can call my Skype number, 310-734-8426. Another thing that you could call me about is to let me know what you do in the winter. Scott, one of my collaborators, had the idea to do an episode about that. What What do farmers do? A lot of people need to make money to get by just to make ends meet. And or they just need to, to fill their time. So so how have you how have you made it work for your uh, for your farming career? I'd love to know that. And I hope you like that conversation with Ian. And maybe you'll consider checking out his book. It's a good one. Take care, everybody. Gentle faces and live next door to the birds and the bees.